Hey everyone, Simba Kader here with the MLOps Weekly Podcast. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with Josh Wills. Josh is an investor and advisor who specializes in data and machine learning infrastructure. He was formerly head of data engineering at Slack, the director of data science at Cloudera, and a software engineer at Google. He also is uh, famous for his hot takes on Twitter. Josh, great to have you here today. Simba, thank you so much for having me. So I just gave a quick introduction on you, but would love to start by, you know, you've worked across Google, you worked at Slack, you worked at Cloudera, you've done a lot of stuff in your career. I would love to learn about maybe some of the hardest data problems you've faced or had to solve over your career. Oh man, hardest, hardest data problems I've had to solve. That's a... Or some interesting one you think that that's, people would that's, enjoy. Yeah, that's, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. I don't know. I've, I've talked about a few of them before. I still think I think the hardest data engineering challenge I ever had was rebuilding Slack's search indexing pipeline, which I've, I've talked about a little bit like here and there before and stuff. And I still like as, as I kind of like reflect back on my career, that was still like kind of like the Mount Everest problem for me, or it's something even harder. Maybe K two, like an even technically more difficult mountain climb, is a better analogy, just because of the scale of the problem. Hundreds and hundreds of, of terabytes. It's got to be up on the order of petabytes of data to index right now. And when you're dealing with data sets that large, you encounter like literally every single thing that can possibly go wrong. You know, and it's and stuff that like is things that are like one in a trillion kind of things happen to you because <laughs> you're processing you know like a trillion records. And so like every single thing that can go wrong goes wrong. Yeah, I guess like in terms of the technical challenge in terms of the impact in terms of like improving the performance of slack search and stuff like that it's still like i think the most meaningful problem to me but you know i think that's like from a technical challenge perspective from a people challenge perspective which i think is you know if you talk to most people who have done this stuff for a while they would say the people problems are far more persistent and far more difficult and stuff like that right the thing i'm proudest of is introducing at Slack, like very early on in my tenure there. So like right when I joined back in like October of 2015, the very first thing I did was introducing the notion of, uh, I think what people call now like a data contract that tied our production, like web application systems and the data that they generated to send to our data warehouse and sort of like using thrift schemas and kind of locking that stuff down really, really, really early is one of those things that's like it just prevents so many problems down the line and like so many challenges that like getting that done is, is maybe something that like organizationally speaking I'm proudest of, I think. Yeah. I don't know. What else like what else would you like to talk about? <laughs> I mean so much more. I have like a billion questions about <laughs> the search index and but I actually want to jump into data contracts because it's kind of been a, a hot topic as of late. Absolutely. Well, first, like, how would you define a data contract? Ooh, it's a great question. My own personal definition, which is going to be a little different than everybody else's, is a data contract is an integration test. It's an integration test. And I call it an integration, like integration test, I find it to be like the best analogy for it, because an integration test is something that's obviously well understood in software systems and we've been doing for a very long time. I have multiple production components. I test each of them individually, obviously, but I need to make sure that they work together before I push changes to production, right? Continuous integration. That's, that's what continuous integration is. And so for me, that's, that's really what data contracts are. Data contracts are a signal, first and foremost, that your data warehouse and your data pipelines are production infrastructure, which, you know, is not true a lot of places. And that's fine. Like there's a lot of places where like, you know, I just need to do some basic reporting. And if the reports go down for a day, it's like not the end of the world. 
And then on the other hand, you have like everyone else in the world who's doing like hardcore machine learning stuff <laughs> where if the data pipelines go down, then like production goes down with it or, or starts degrading in kind of really these nasty ways, right? And so if you're in that state, if you're in a situation where your data warehouse, your data pipelines are production with a capital P, therefore you must have integration tests between your upstream production systems and your downstream production systems, just as you would for any other kind of set of components. The trick, I think, what's, what's made this, I think why we need the term data contracts or like why this is hard, is that it's been incredibly difficult to really do sort of proper integration testing between the world of production and the world of data. Like, so like at Slack, right, we had a web application that was initially in PHP and kind of over time migrated to Hack, which is, which is kind of Facebook's improved, improved PHP implementation, right? And then we had a downstream data warehousing system, which was kind of like a fairly classic Netflix-style data lake, Parquet files in S3, lots of Spark, lots of Hive, lots of Presto, right? And these are two completely different absolutely gigantic engineering systems. And so moving data between these two systems involves, you know, a Kafka broker that's going to process like 250,000 events per second, right? It's got all this massive data processing infrastructure around it. And so how do you come up with a way to do a relatively fast, relatively lightweight set of tests and verification checks between these two systems? So you can ensure that you, when you make a change upstream, you're not breaking stuff downstream. Like that's that's kind of the trick, and I think I think that's the area where like a lot of people are still searching. When I see people doing data contract stuff, even now in 2023, they're still pretty much inventing their own way of doing it. They're inventing their own interface definition language. They're inventing their own set of tests and stuff like that. Like that's just kind of where we are. We haven't like settled on a standard for this yet, or we have not. We have simply have not made this easy in any way, shape, or form for people to do without a huge amount of engineering effort. And that's that kind of sucks. <laughs> it's basically like this is not this is not a good place to be. Anyway. So we've had great expectations for a while. We had great absolutely. That's right. And we've had even in Kafka, like we've had schemas in Kafka for a while. Yes. And what you're describing seems like it's simultaneously like both of those and more. I just would love to like understand if someone's like, hey, I have a Kafka schema and I've great expectations, like is that like a data contract? Is it not? Like, how is what's missing from those two? Okay, it's awesome, fantastic question, Simba. The key differentiator for me, what, what, what I think differentiates like from like your standard Kafka schema, great expectations, DBT tests, whatever it is you do, is basically where is that test happening? Is that test happening prior to a change going to production? So like at Slack, you could not push a change to production unless the data schema contract, like the data schema test passed. Like it would simply would not go through. It would fail. It would block your deploy. Or is it the case that you don't find out about the change to the schema or the great expectation test failure until 24 hours later when the data pipeline is running? That is the key differentiator to me. If, if the tests happen before the push to production and can block the push to production, it is a data contract, like capital D, capital C. It has teeth. It enforces a blocking change, right? Whereas if it happens 24 hours later, then it's, it's an audit, it's a test, it's a, it's a check. And again, it's not to say it's not important, it's not to say we don't need to do it. We, we do, we absolutely do. Because stuff's still going to get through. But for me, it's like, that's, that really is that prior to changing the system in production, we make the check, that's, that's the key quality, I think, for me. And again, because the data infrastructure has been so massive and so big for so long, it's just been hard to do that. It's just been hard to like 
you can't realistically run like, you know, a five tran data extraction, a whole snowflake pipeline, <laughs> like on every single production chain when you're doing continuous integration. Like you, there's no one, you know, no one has that much time and money, right? You could never get anything done. And that to me is like why we have not done this historically. So yeah. That to me is, is the clear differentiator. And to me, it's like if you have those checks ahead of time, then your data warehouse is production. And if you don't have those checks ahead of time, then your data warehouse, while still important, is not production. It just isn't. <laughs> like, period. Yeah, that's that's me. I think what I'm seeing a lot of recently, and I think we're seeing this paradigm shift where there's almost like has been this dichotomy between production data pipelines and almost like it's called like experimentation where we're just like learning about the data, understanding it, analyzing it, playing around with it, especially in ML. There's a very, very clear experimentation step totally. before you get to production. Totally. And I feel like tools have always picked one side of the fence. Are you Completely. an experimentation tool or are you a production tool? Yes. And what's been missing, in my opinion, is kind of these workflow tools that are, they make sense on both ends. Like they are what you would be doing experimentation, but they're inherently like thinking about productionizing. I completely agree with you, I think. I mean, I think that's exactly right. And I, I feel that tension. I think a lot of folks do. This is something um, Hamel Hussein and I, who does a lot of notebook stuff and NB dev and stuff like that, have talked about a lot because he is he is deeply interested in this divide. I think, I think a large part of it, Simba, is that software engineers, generally speaking, do not grok the experimental interactive nature of a lot of data work, especially a lot of machine learning work. Like it just kind of does not make sense to them because it doesn't describe their work. They use an IDE. They don't use a notebook. And it just does not compute. <laughs> like, right? I mean it just it just doesn't. Simultaneously, I think folks who do a lot of experimentation and interactive development stuff do not have a great mental model for how to like do automation and and reproducibility and stuff very well. Right. And so we're kind of we're kind of stuck here. These two worlds just completely talking past each other, and it's it's deeply, deeply frustrating for folks. I know it, I know it's frustrating for everybody. I should probably be doing more here. I feel I've been fortunate to live on both sides of this divide, and I don't know the solution here. I would love to. I'm open to suggestion. I guess is what I want to say here. Like I'm not I'm not saying this is not an easy problem. If it was, we would have solved it already. It's it's legit hard. How do you respect and enable and support that experimental, iterative, try it? You know, just get the like almost like the kind of like the flow state in some sense of like working with a data set, working with a model while also being militant about reproducibility. Being like, it's just, it's just hard, man. It's just hard. I, I, do, I mean, do you have thoughts here? Like, I mean, have, have y'all thought about this? I mean, I'm just, I'd just be curious. I don't mean to turn the interview back around on you, but like, I'm, I'm, I'm very open to ideas here is what I want to say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a big promise of, of what we call the virtual feature stores to kind of okay. solve that piece for ML. And the whole concept is it should be, when you're iterating, all that we, let's call it, let's say, force upon the data scientist is that you use this kind of almost like function framework. You just, rather than just writing your query or your pandas transformation or whatever, yep. raw notebook, you just kind of tab it, give it a function, that function name becomes the name of that transformation. Okay. You can later add versioning and other things if you want to productionize it. And... The goal would be over time that the iteration and the deployment, like there would be slightly different modes, but there's almost, I almost think of it or liken it to like a Django or something where it's just like, if you follow this framework, it will automatically make it very easy to productionize while making it feel like you're writing experimentation code. Now, the difference between a Django and like what we're doing is that, mm -hmm. like you said, 
Django is very is a linear process. Like I need this new REST call. It does X Y Z. Exactly. Where with data science and with feature engineering, there's a lot of like if someone told me that hey, I spent a month going down this project and I realized with the data we have and everything, it'd actually be impossible to create a model that does this. I'd be like, great, that's a good use of time. We like figured out if this thing's impossible. If yes. a software engineer told me, hey, I took a month doing this and like <laughs> we're throwing it all away, I would be like, dude, no, what you can't. That's not, yeah, exactly. exactly. Not okay. That's right. <laughs> See, that's exactly it. I mean, that's the key right there. That's a great point. Yeah, totally. I guess I'm sort of thinking of like, I, I sort of love, or I find I find it very instructive to think of like extreme cases of people tackling this problem. And I think a lot of uh of Netflix in this way and the work they have done to make notebooks like production things, right? With their like it's it's paper mill, I think is the name of their tool, and they have some other stuff like that. And then yeah, and then the other thing they did, which I just like still boggles my mind, was just to get the feature data for their training pipelines, they would literally query the production systems from the training environment. It's just I mean, the kind of thing that just sounds like absolutely insane to me, right? But it's it's part and parcel of their like chaos monkey kind of engineering culture, <laughs> where hey, the machine learning team is going to do ninety thousand RPCs to your service in like an hour. Hope that's cool, <laughs> like you know. And it's just like yeah, that's just like what they do. Anyway, I just, I get a kick out of stuff like that. I don't recommend anyone do that. <laughs> just me. It's like absolutely, absolutely fascinating that they of the ways that they like think about to tackle these problems and stuff. So anyway, yeah. Well, maybe a question there would be: Where do notebooks fit? And do notebooks fit in production? I obviously are gonna. I think we both agree that they're kind of an integral part of, of the experimentation pipeline. I mean, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Like, where do they fit in, or should they go in production? Exactly. Oh, I, I think it's like you're kind of talking to me, Simba, like when I'm kind of mid conversion. So I, I have been a long time notebook hater. I've been very anti-notebooks for a really long time. And I am basically slowly coming around, I think. <laughs> I think obviously like, like a lot of other people, I've been messing around with long, large language models a lot, right? And like doing this stuff in a notebook is just, it's like pure joy. You know what I mean? It's like me and my Jarvis hanging out, hacking together. You know what I mean? Like I'm just loving it. And so it's changing, it's changing the way I think about this kind of stuff. I have not quite become like the full throated advocate convert. There's no evangelist like the convert or whatever the whatever the, the quote is, right? I haven't quite gotten there yet, but I do I do very much feel like I was wrong. Notebooks are actually great. And especially in kind of the like large language model centric future we are, I believe we are headed towards, they are going to play like an outsized role in like how we work, not just as data people, machine learning people, but just as like people, <laughs> like as human beings, I sort of suspect that like a, some sort of notebook like thing is going to become a bigger way that we work going forward. And so, yeah, in that world, I think for me, it's like, it's time to re-examine systems like paper mill. It's time to like really start thinking hard about how do we make these things, I don't know, how do I make these things work as much like the boring, good old reliable cron jobs that I've, you know, like written in Python that I've been running for years and years and years, right? But I, I don't know that I have the answer yet, other than say that I'm I was wrong and I'm I'm coming around and I'm again super interested in figuring out ways to solve this. Yeah. I'm curious to get your feedback. So I'm similar. I actually I'm am like kind way. of a yeah, I was like a very like part of it I think is because I was in ML for for a bit. We we're building recommender systems, we we're doing on like hundred million MAU, we we're doing all kinds of like transformer based, we we're creating user embeddings, creating item embeddings, doing all kinds of fun stuff. 
And I come from background at Google. Uh, at Google, I wrote both PHP and x86 at different points in my career there. That's drawing. Uh, That's wild. Okay, good. That's two really, truly terrible programming languages for you to know. I'm kidding. I'm yeah, I've worked yeah. on both. I've worked on, it's like the horseshoe. Like, I, the I have both bands, the they suck. Worst the bottom. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, got it. Okay. So I kind of came from like, I didn't use notebooks. I used Python files. I, you know, That's how I worked. And I definitely was converted to like, hey, notebooks are just such a better way to do this. But then I kind of was in the same boat of like, but these things should be nowhere near production. And my take now, which I, again, I'm curious to get your, is uh, notebooks are where you should be building things, but you should be taking these artifacts that you create and exporting them somewhere else. Yes. Okay. Do you buy that? I, I, I mean, I broadly do. I mean, I think that's, that's kind of where I've ended up with this sort of stuff. And again, just hanging out, hanging out with folks has introduced me to NB Dev and Cordo and kind of all these other things of like mechanisms for like taking my exploratory stuff and then crystallizing it into some kind of structure that's designed for reproducibility and and runnability without me sitting at the keyboard to guide the cell execution and stuff like that, right? So yeah, I mean, I, I think that's right. I, I think it's just like what I've, I don't feel like I've seen yet is like what's the right what's the right sort of gesture. Almost like in the way that like GitHub introduced like the pull request, right? As as their sort of fundamental innovation, sort of the social action you can take, right? I have to be honest with you. Whenever I I hear about or read about a framework or something, I'm like immediately I'm just kind of like seized up with fear because I feel like it's gonna it's gonna harsh my vibe. It's gonna like it's gonna mess up my workflow. It's not gonna be like it's gonna be this constraint that's gonna and it's it's one of those things where like to a certain extent like a framework can give you freedom the constraint can set you free in kind of other ways and stuff like that. But it's just like, it's just my instinctive response of like a notebook is this free for all exploratory, whatever. And you want to come along and impose rules and strictures on me. And it's like, I'm not going to be able to like to come up with the great next great neural architecture because I'm going to be stuck in, you know what I mean? Like, which isn't rational, but it's just like, it's just my emotional reaction to that kind of stuff. I can't imagine. I'm like, I'm vocalizing this. I don't feel like I'm the first person to feel this way though. Does that make sense? I think it's totally true. I think what it is, we've all seen the mad landscape thing. I always joke if you if you take take that yep. and you have to narrow it down to products that data scientists love to use. Like actually truly love to truly use. Truly love to use, exactly. It would yep. be like ten. You know, it just would cut down At Yeah, most. it would cut yeah, down precisely. dramatically. Totally. And I think that's I think people who build dev tools are engineers. And engineers, as much as we like to pretend we're rational creatures, we are very, very emotionally driven. Very much and so. we feel like, well, I like it this way or I want it this way. So therefore, like, I'm going to do it this way. And if you don't agree with me, you're dumb. That's and right. I think that lots of the frameworks that get built in general, they tend to be over-engineered. Because again, the other thing that we like to do is if someone's like, how if it did this? We're like, cool, we can do that. And we never ask ourselves, should we do that? You know, that's because we can doesn't mean we should. And I think that lots of times, like, like we just did this meetup with uh, Sebastian at FastAPI. And one thing I like about FastAPI is it's very simple. It's very lightweight. Like, it doesn't it's feel fantastic. like it's getting in the way. It's just fantastic. And I love it so much. Absolutely. Right. So you're talking about tools, 10 tools people love. Yeah, FastAPI, without a doubt. 100% in my 10. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think most products like wouldn't fit that. And I don't think that that's necessarily that, hey, like frameworks are a bad thing. It's just getting a framework right. Like uh, API design is one of the hardest problems. 
Totally. And people like to jump into it and like, well, just add this function call and it's done. And it just needs, it's like an art and it's a craft and people who are really good at it are few and far between. That's why you see the same people who built Go, whether you like it or not, are also similar people who are like huge on Unix. Like that's how rare it is to find good API people. If we had to go source people from like kind of olden days of... This of is, yeah, exactly. Richie, absolutely. Like Rob Pike. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. On sad but true, Simba, sad but true. Alas, I don't I like, I like to think we can do better here, but okay, I hear you. I hear what you're saying. That's fair. Yeah, I think that's all it is. I, I don't think it's necessarily that like frameworks are bad. I just think doing having really good frameworks is really, really hard, and it's so hard that like it's one. It's like there's probably one in every hundred that even like I mean, it's true. are. I, I, like one of my one of my weird systems. I, I you know also like former Googler, right? I was I was there from like 2007 to 2011, and I was actually I, I had the privilege. I had two sort of like weird privileges at Google. One was Rob Pike did my first code review at Google. First code review. I, I added a couple of libraries to Sawzall for doing various kinds of non-parametric correlation calculations, like Spearman correlation and then like stuff like that, right? For some work I was doing. That code review symbol went on for like 30 days. 30 days. And and like maybe like maybe like 50 odd revisions, Rob Pike. I mean, I'll never think like the, <laughs> the last one he did was he had me change. I had some like bounds checking function I was using and he had me like reverse the arguments because he liked the way it looked better and I was like it was amazing symbol that I did not quit after that code review like if I, I like looking back on it if I had any kind of I mean the good news I was like I was young and, and you know had a very <laughs> fragile ego and stuff and so I, I in retrospect I probably should have quit but I didn't the other thing I was in I was invited to the very first technical talk from like Rob Pike and Russ Cox about go I got to go like it's like all the most senior engineers at the company, and also me. I'm also there for some reason, basically. And I remember like just the decidedly kind of <laughs> meh, like reaction from so many people in Google. We're like, yeah, go, yeah, it's kind of okay. <laughs> like I guess they may have gotten some things right and stuff like that. And you know, over time, obviously, Go has, has been incredibly successful and has completely found its community and stuff like that, right? And so I, I think that's kind of the the other part here is like the the tool has to fit the hand. Like a lot of those a lot of those like hardcore C developers were like just not the people that like were they were just not going to adopt Go. It was just never going to happen, right? And so they're all like, eh, whatever, not not that good. But then it found its community, and as it did, it grew accordingly. And so it's, it's like that figuring out that match between like the tool and the community to wield it is like just so critical and so, so hard to get right. Yeah. I actually, funny enough, like a funny connection. I worked on the same floor as Rob Pike for a while. He was like pretty close to me. So I used to play pool um, <laughs> in the micro nice, kitchen. Nice. So I luckily never had to deal with his code reviews, but I'm not surprised with that. that it was, would be it was experience. absolutely, absolutely brutal, brutal, humbling, humiliating experience without a doubt. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I'm sure. But also, like, you need to be that much of a perfectionist to build these sorts of APIs. Doesn't mean that you should be building everything, but yeah, if you're building, exactly. you know, it's kind of a funny balance. I don't. Know, I go. I go back and forth, and I like to think that Google broke me of my egotistical identification with my source code. Of like, where it sort of broke me of the notion that like the code I wrote was an extension of my own personality, and that anything wrong with it was something that was deeply wrong with me. And Google to its credit, in sort of a basic training kind of way, <laughs> broke me of that belief and showed me that like it's not. This is a company. The source code is our product. We all build it together. We are all responsible for it, and so on and so forth. Just one of those useful life lessons we take away from these horrible experiences. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, I wasn't on Google very long either for probably sounds like similar reasons. Is, is that I don't know? Was like I was there for like almost four years. Is that not very long? I don't know. Is that not? I think that's pretty long. That's probably, probably pretty long, right? I felt it yeah. felt it felt long. I'm not gonna lie, it felt long. Yeah. <laughs> I wanna I wanna jump into another. I wanna take a conversation to uh, uh, LMs because it's a hot topic. And uh, well, first, tell me about them. Is this transformational? Is this a whole new paradigm we're dealing with? What's what's going on? What's your take? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yes. The answer is yes. You have to kind of like the hype around LLMs is so off the charts right now that you kind of have to like properly calibrate yourself in terms of like where you are in the hype cycle. And I, I guess I divide this into like the two kind of main framings I think of is this is as big of a deal as like a mobile phone, right? Like this is the next dominant paradigm that will reshape society and stuff like that in the same way that the mobile phone did like 15 years ago, right? That's one level of hype. And that's a pretty big level. That's a lot of hype. Mobile phones, really big deal. Change a lot of stuff. The next level of hype, though, and I have friends who inhabit this level, is the, this is electricity. This is going to, like, like this is akin to, like, us, you know, harness, like, in the light bulb, or, like, Edison and Tesla and stuff, like, way, way back in the day. It's, it's that level of, of impactful. I have some friends who are on that level. I guess, I, I think I'm kind of, I think I've maybe flirted a bit with the electricity level of transformativeness. I don't, like, I don't feel like I'm there right now. I think I'm definitely like well above the like this is this is bigger than the mobile phone level of hype, but I'm not quite on the like this is electricity kind of level of hype. That's 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 sort of where I'm hanging out right now. Somewhere somewhere sort of in the muddy middle in between those two extremes. It's a very big deal. I think it's going to reshape all kinds of things in ways that are very difficult to predict. Just in terms of our own lives, I just it seems like fairly obvious to me that we will all have like I mentioned the Jarvis thing before, because that's kind of like, I, I obviously I pay for a GPT-4 subscription. And so like I hang out a good part of the day talking to my, talking to my GPT-4 instances. We're like hacking away on stuff, right? And I feel like having that sort of like Jarvis level in the Iron Man sense kind of relationship for everybody on our phones in like the next year or two is just kind of a given, you know? And I find it fascinating to think through like the, the implications of that, of that. Like, is it going to be like, you know, if you and I want to do a podcast together, <laughs> is it going to be our Jarvises like coordinating the podcast? Is it going to be the Jarvises doing the research ahead of time? Will the Jarvises be here with us on the podcast, weighing in on things? <laughs> and like, do you and I even need to be here? Or can the Jarvises just do it for us? Like, like all this kind of stuff. This is this is the sort of stuff I find myself wondering about these days. Yeah, yeah, I can't wait for my Jarvis to be like Simba. That's factually wrong. I just yeah, very precisely. They, they, they <laughs> yeah, so. exactly. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely my my knowing myself as I do, my Jarvis will be like super will be absolutely hypercritical and, and just, you know, borderline cruel against me. So sort of like if I could come up with like a software manifestation of my imposter syndrome, it would be that's that's exactly what it'll be. That's that's great. <laughs> that would be a good happening for it to imposter. I mean, precisely. Precisely. <laughs> so I like the analogy of electricity versus the mobile phone. Mobile phone. I think what's interesting there, which makes it maybe almost like, and actually the analogy is even more interesting in my head is, you know, electricity, like you mentioned, like if you go back to Edison, it was a long time ago. And it took a while before, like, I don't think even then there were like people like, Hey, like this is the transformative of as like, I don't know, like, like ovens. <laughs> like, who knows what the last, like, <laughs> the, wheel, like <laughs> the wheel. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, I wonder how much, it just as things accelerate, it's almost like maybe it's like the mobile phone now, but we'll look back like this was such a primitive form of what is to come. And that's how I think of electricity, where like, you know, obviously electricity was huge 
foundational change, but I don't know if I've ever until this conversation really thought of it as like more foundational than the mobile phone as much as we just continuously build on the shoulders Absolutely. of giants and over time. I mean, precisely. Yeah. I mean, for me, I, the, the book I'm going to recommend here, um, which I love, is, is called Empires of Light. Empires of Light. And there was actually a, a sort of really bad movie based on Empires of Light. It was called, it was called The Current War. The current and like the current war about the, the sort of the war between Edison and Westinghouse slash, slash Tesla over direct current versus alternating current. So again, I used to do, I used to work on, I worked at a company called WeaveGrid for a couple of years um, after I left Slack. And I was doing like selling software for utilities for managing electric vehicles. And so I have a weird, nerdy obsession with like the utility grid and the history of the grid and stuff like that that, that sort of fed into my, my desire to work on this kind of stuff. So yeah, the Empires of Light absolutely fantastic book about like what the early stages of the like industrial use of electricity and sort of like how it changed society. The, th- the thing I guess that was most fascinating to me about like it was, was really what electricity did first was it allowed us to create time in the sense that like electric light made days longer and that's just kind of one of those things that's like sort of hard to wrap your head around at first, right? Like it literally created time. Hours of the day that were not available for doing things suddenly were available for doing things, which is amazing. And the other thing which is remarkable about it is how long it took for these innovations to reach everywhere. Like the start of the book is talking about J.P. Morgan having the first electrified house in New York City and doing like literally running like a coal plant in his basement to power the thing, right? He has like, you know, coal and smoke like belching out the back of his house from like running his electrical system. But then how it was not until like the New Deal, which was like 50 or 60 years later before electrification reached out into rural environments in the United States. And like basically everybody had electricity. It was not until like the 1940s or 50s. It took a really, really, really long time for this stuff to get out everywhere. And that's, I don't I, I think about this stuff with like LLMs a lot. I think of this as like, we're sort of in the early days of like, you have an LLM, I have an LLM, and it's, it's obviously spreading like so quickly, but I'm just curious to think about how long will this take to reach everyone in the world? How long will it be like, again, where like literally everybody has a Jarvis, every, every human being on the planet has a Jarvis. That's, that's sort of, is it, is it like 60 years? Is it a decade? I like, what is it? I'm not really sure. Anyway. Yeah. it makes me think of two things. One with regards to the time and the increase of time. Also, like a quick side note, like I feel like so much of how the US works today was kind of foundationalized during that kind of industrial revolution. Totally. And I feel like there's like, it's really interesting to read about all that stuff because it's yes, almost it like this long running kind of cascading effect, but you can almost trace back to these innovations. Literally from like how finance works all the way to like, you said like electricity was all kind of like the foundations were set like about I guess over a hundred years ago now, but I like the, the time example is interesting because it relates to like, well, even if you have more time, you still go to sleep and it kind of goes to the what we're catching up. And I think it almost applies here at LLMs too, where it's just like, just because we can do all these things, like, are we like, you know, the one thing that we can't easily update yet I and mean, who knows is uh, the wetware and like ourselves essentially, like how, how our brains work and process and, and do these things. And um, I think it'll be interesting to see that come into play too, especially if we start to get to this point where we do find LLMs that are, I guess, stronger. Like you mentioned, like having them do the podcast for us. It's kind of like <laughs> finding, finding where we, I think we're a ways away from them being that 
powerful, but I mean, it's definitely opened the questions up as we hit this kind of new inflection point of, I kind of liken it to like the new technologies. It's almost like the straw that broke camel's back in the sense of from a research perspective, like the techniques that we're using to create these LLMs aren't necessarily, they're new, but they're more of an extension of something. It's not like this is a whole new, like, oh, we just changed everything from yesterday to today. We just invented this new concept. It's more of at the concept we've gotten so good and, and have fine-tuned it so much and gotten so good at building these transformer-based architectures that we now have passed this, like, I guess, valley of disbelief from when humans interact with it. Like, it's just gotten so good that it's like, cool, I see the light now. Like, it's not you pitching me something and then I look at the product and I'm like, yeah, no, this isn't AI. Like, it's finally like, okay, like, it's still imperfect, but it feels unlike what we were seeing before. Uh, I mean, I, I, it's certainly imperfect. I mean, I think on, on the podcast point, I mean, there is like, there is like now the Joe Rogan AI experience, which is like a purely AI driven podcast featuring an AI Joe Rogan talking to like an AI Sam Altman and stuff like this, this, this is, this is here. <laughs> this happens. You and I obviously are not important enough to have an AI, you know, talking for us basically. Like we're just like two idiots, right? But it doesn't seem that far off to me. I don't think like before this, this is, if, you know, if we want, you can just like, I'm just, yeah, I'm happy to just send, you know, send my AI over to you. Here's, here's your budget for how much compute you're allowed to use to have me generate answers and stuff like that. Like that's, <laughs> anyway. yeah, and I think that actually opens to the next point, which you mentioned about like use. Like I actually think that a lot of what we're doing now is essentially subsidized by Microsoft and, and others. Like there's no way. And so yeah, there's no way that like they're making profit off of what you're spending for chat, for GPT four, and that's only on the like, cost of goods. So it's just literally on like the electricity and the, the GPU time. Like that's not ignoring all the work that goes into actually building these things. And so that I think that's going to be a big question too. Is almost yeah, even if this is foundational, once like kind of economics come into play, it becomes a lot harder to justify having like this kind of constantly running large neural network that like answers every one of your like ridiculous questions that you come up with as you're standing. And I think that's where like lots of the professional use cases are probably going to find more widespread use because you can make the kind of economic argument there. Mm -hmm. I feel like the personal Jarvis like will kind of be a thing that is left to like people who can spend like 10. Yeah. Like the, the, the JP Morgans of, of our day, I think at first, at first, but I mean, just, you know, people will just be super, super incentivized to figure out how to make this stuff cheaper and how to, you know, make the hardware better and all that kind of stuff. Like, I just, is it tomorrow we all have a Jarvis? No, of course not. Is it 10 years from now? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Is it five years from now? Eh, maybe, maybe, not quite sure. Like that, that's, I mean, it, it gets fuzzy. What's the, it's the, you know, the cliche about like, you overestimate what can be done in a year and underestimate what can be done in a decade. I think that's, I suspect we're in that sort of part of the hype cycle right now. We're overestimating what can be done in a year and underestimating what can be done in a decade. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, it's almost like CPUs where it's almost like we kept going and going at speed, 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 speed. And then all of a sudden we got to this point where it's like, hey, actually speed isn't what matters anymore. It's, it's energy efficiency, it's heat. It's like this other kind of concept. And I think that's where we just got. We're like, hey, like these things are starting to get plenty accurate. It's not really the issue anymore. Like it could always do better for specialized use cases, but like it's probably way higher ROI to figure out how can we do what we're doing now, but with significantly less parameters. And Absolutely. I think that's kind of 
it's been like a known thing for a while, but I think we've finally gotten to the point where it's not a like interesting niche point of research. And it's actually become like a, hey, if you pull this off, like you're going to make a lot of money. Like, there's, like a, there's a pot of gold waiting for you. Absolutely. Exactly right. How do you think bringing LMs back to like data, like how is this going to change the, how people do data, how, how ML works? Like is traditional ML done for? Like where are we at in that sense? Yeah. So, I mean, this is a question I've been thinking about a lot since I was, I've been anticipating being asked this question on podcasts and stuff like that. You know what I mean? So I've been giving this a lot of thought. I have sort of two thoughts, two thoughts here. And again, this is, this is early. And again, I can be completely wrong about this stuff. My first thought, at least, at least in particular with data, as it portends to data and data analysis and so on and so forth. For a long time, data engineering has been focused on data modeling. And how do we, how do we model data for human consumption for BI tools. Like we do, we do look ML, we do semantic layers, we do dimensional models. Like we, we model data to make it interpretable, approachable by humans and so on and so forth. Right. And with LLMs, I think you're starting to see that, that conversation shift to not basically like, we're not going to model data for humans anymore. We're going to model data for the large language models. The large language models will be the sort of target audience for our data models. And so some folks have been talking about activity schema, like the activity schema kind of pattern is a, is a better model perhaps for how, how would we make sort of data consumable, like where like the large language model doesn't really care about a bunch of stuff that a person cares about. Like a large language model doesn't care that the table has like a thousand columns in it. Doesn't, doesn't care. Doesn't make any difference. It makes a lot of difference to a person. A person sees a thousand columns or like, oh my God, like what's going on here, right? But the large language model doesn't care. And so therefore activity schemas or, or sort of these, these other kind of like, I would say like kind of non-standard data models, like data models that aren't as popular with like the classic BI tools and stuff like that will be in ascendance as we build for large language models. I would take that one step further though. I think that the engineering problem will no longer be how to engineer the data models. It will sort of be like, how do I engineer a data analyst? How do I build like using sort of the large language model as, as a primitive and my own understanding of the business and the context and all that kind of stuff that these tools available to me, how would I synthesize an actual data analyst? Like the joke that like the persistent problem in, in data for a long time has been like the shoulder tap phenomenon. Like, hey, can you just grab a, grab a, pull some data from me on this thing real quick? Data analyst person, right? And it's super annoying and like data analysts hate it. It drives them crazy. Like they're basically like a, a SQL generator that spits out Excel spreadsheets or whatever with, with data polls, right? But the large language model is not going to care. The large language model is going to be super happy to do that. It, it literally nothing will make the large language model happier than spitting out some SQL and sending you an Excel file in it, right? And so I think that engineering a system to do that, to build a system to do that with business context, with the data itself, with the tools available is like the next grand challenge of data engineering. I think someone's going to like figure out how to do that. Similarly, like for machine learning models, my historical experience like for machine learning has been kind of similar to yours. I've worked on like ad click prediction systems. I've worked on recommender systems. I've worked on fraud detection systems, spam detection systems, like very, very classifier heavy stuff where there's lots of feature engineering, right? And like, let's gather more data and like, let's run it through XGBoost and like, let's go do our thing. And I'm imagining that same kind of workflow applying here, where like the large language model is like yet another machine learning engineer, and we're giving it these classification problems, and it's sitting there and it's like cranking stuff out and trying out features and 
different weights and different algorithms and stuff. And like, that's what it does all day. Quite possibly reporting back to me in a notebook like environment, like what exactly it's been up to, right? That sort of stuff. That for me, it's moving. It's a weird thing to say, I think, but it's data engineering, ML engineering, moving from empowering data analysts or making them productive to essentially replacing a large part of the most tedious and awful part of their job <laughs> with a software system that just is built to do that, to do that role, stuff like that. That's, that's kind of like thing one that's interesting. Thing two that's interesting to me is how this changes the landscape. Like, I have this sort of mental model in, in my head when it comes to like the data tools market, which is what I spend most of my time thinking about, right? And so in the data tools market, there is ingestion. So there's like the Airbytes and the Five Trans, the Meltanos that like get data from source systems and move it, move it into a data warehouse. And then there's the BI tools. There's your mode and your tableau and your looker and, and all those things, right? And in the middle, like the absolute star of the show, the sun that everything else revolves around, is the cloud data warehouse. It is the Snowflake, Big BigQuery, Redshift. I was about to say, I said Big Shift. That's fantastic, right? BigQuery, Redshift, Postgres whatever else it is you, you like to use, right? And I can't help but wonder how that looks, how that model works going forward. I can't help but wonder if like, it seems to me the most likely place for like, if, if, so if I want to inject a large language model into this stack, ingestion, cloud data warehouse, BI, where does it go? It seems kind of obvious to me that it goes in the BI layer. It goes in the presentation analysis layer. That's where it goes. And once it's there... <laughs> What happens to the rest of the stack? Like, I feel like the center of gravity, the most important system for so long, has been the cloud data warehouse. But I kind of think that LLMs end up shifting that over to the BI side of things. The BI tool becomes the most important thing in the world. And I maybe don't care so much anymore about how the data is modeled or like what the backend cloud data storage system is because I don't I don't know anything about that. It's not designed for me anymore. It's designed for the large language model that's powering the BI tool, and so. To me, it's like, what about the stack has to change in order to allow us to effectively incorporate large language models and make them more effective at their jobs? And again, I don't know, but I, I think it's going to shift the balance of power towards the BI side and away from the cloud data warehouses. That's my rough sense. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you could argue that that's where the final business value comes from. Like just having stuff like deploy doesn't inherently drive value. It's more like the things you do with it. And it always kind of made sense that eventually it kind of falls into a commodity category. It does, but it, I mean, it hasn't so far. And Snowflake yeah. has done a fantastic job of not letting that happen by being better at integrating storage and compute together to handle large volumes of data and, and do all this great stuff. And so you kind of need something as disruptive as large language models in order to like shift the balance of power here. And it is like up there with like the mobile phone changing the way we develop software and stuff like that. It has to be the sort of that, something of that magnitude. Otherwise, things would just, I think, just kind of go on the way they always have, more or less. Yeah. I agree. And I think that's what we're seeing. And I think that as a, another company like Databricks, I think has always done a very good job at moving up the solution stack. They've done a lot to make sure they're not just like Spark and that they get as close as they can to being like actual, like, I mean, I don't know if they have a BI tool, but I would be surprised if they did. Or if they, they, have a, they have a notebook-based system, of course. Like, of course they do. You can do notebooks and databricks, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And now, I mean, now it's Dolly, or, or what's their... Dolly, yeah, Dolly's yeah, there. Yeah, Dolly. 
Absolutely. Now I'm thinking of Dolly, I immediately thought of like the old Dolly, like the image one. That's how fast I guess Jenna. Oh, Dolly, the Dolly. That's super great. That's super funny. Dude, I even, it's so funny. I've been reading about Databricks as Dolly, and I didn't even make that connection. That's why I thought they were doing it like as a reference to the the sheep that was cloned or whatever. But that's I think they, they are, and I've never ever made that reference. So right now, when I said it, I'm like, did I just say that wrong? <laughs> like I think I've never like thought about it while saying it. I'm like, I just like, I didn't either. That's yeah. fantastic. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't get that. I think that's that. That makes a ton of sense. It, it, it just yeah. The data breaks to me is, is. I mean, I think this is this is the other kind of great question here, which is that like I love seeing the Dolly stuff that Databricks is doing. Databricks is very much incentivized to live in a world in which everyone trains their own large language models. Like that's that is a much better outcome for the world for Databricks than a world in which like there is only one model. <laughs> there is GPT-7 or whatever, and that's it. <laughs> and that's the only model, and everyone uses GPT-7 to do everything, right? So it's it's like, I get where they're coming from. Going that approach like 100% makes sense for their business and all that kind of good stuff. It's hard for me to know right now whether there will be one model to rule them all or whether everyone will have their own little model and stuff. And I can make, I, I think we'll here. have to, yeah. well, we'll, we'll kind of give it away is once the economics come into play, like once you can't, like once you're like, cool, you can't just like raise however many billions of dollars. Like you finally have to start cashing in a bit and start to actually like charge what you're actually, because it's an open, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there's a handful of people in the world who know, but I don't know how much each query Costs, costs open AI, right. but it's probably a lot. It's probably a lot more than we think. I'm sure it is not cheap. I mean, it seems like these days the 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 scarce commodity is not money. Obviously, a scarce commodity is like literally GPUs. <laughs> like, yeah, just just there was a good article about that in the information. Like, just getting the GPUs is like physically difficult to do right now. Unfortunately, yeah. Yeah, we'll start like trading like GPUs for food. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it wouldn't, honestly, wouldn't shock me to see that. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, precisely. Yeah, awesome. Well, Josh. I feel like we keep going for a long time, but I do need to you have cut a job. this off. You have, yeah, you have things to do, exactly. Yeah, totally. I understand. Well, I'd rather be here talking to you, and maybe we'll bring you back on for another one of these. Maybe we'll do like, a, where did we end up on this in, in, in however long? Totally. I, I, would, I would love to listen to this conversation in like six months or a year and just absolutely cringe at how wrong I was about it. <laughs> well, thanks again for hopping on. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me, man. This was fun. I appreciate it.